Before we get to today's episode, I want to take a moment to remember someone who is very important to me and to the history of this show. I regret to inform all of you that friend of mine and past guest here on this show, Carl Domanger, passed away a few days ago uh, due to his ongoing battle with cancer. And if any of you are longtime listeners and have listened to previous episodes with Carl, you probably know that he was a huge part in getting me outdoors and introducing me to all the various things that I've gotten into in the last 12, 13 years. And without his influence, I certainly wouldn't be the person that I am now. And this show probably would not exist, nor would my life be anything like it is right now. Uh, Carl was one of those outdoor generalists. He did a little bit of everything from climbing to mountaineering to caving to canyoneering and hiking. He ran for a long time an outdoor group called Extreme Things, and it particularly had an adventure club, which I was a member of. My first experience backpacking, my first experiences climbing, these all happened in this Extreme Things Adventure Club. And over the years, he grew to be a very close friend to me and Erica. And he's been battling cancer for the last seven years. But he wasn't just an outdoors person. He was also one of those people that donated his time to the Posse Foundation to help, to help children get higher education he donated his time to search and rescue. He just all around was a really good guy who really wanted to help other people attain great things. And as cheesy as it may sound, the world was a better place for having Carl Domage in it. And now there's a hole where he once was. I wish I had some sort of inspiring words for everyone out there, but I'm still kind of processing this myself. I really miss the guy, and uh, I was always holding out hope that um, that something was going to happen, and, and uh, he'd get better. So uh, let's get to the show. Everybody, welcome to episode 88 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back. Welcome aboard. Today we will be speaking to married couple Sara Al Awadi and Alan Shidley. She is an Emirati, he is an American. They live together in the United Arab Emirates, and together they are working to develop bouldering areas in that region, a region that does not have a huge climbing culture. So we're going to talk about the culture of the United Arab Emirates, the ethics of the region, and how those ethics are similar and or different from those in the United States. We're going to talk about the food of the area. We're going to talk about misconceptions about the Middle East in general. And of course, we are going to talk about climbing and the process of creating a guidebook. 
Sometimes I worry that this show is too Western U.S. focused, so I always like when we get to delve into other regions of the U.S. or the globe. So I'm excited because this is the first episode where I'm talking to anyone from the Middle East. So I'm really looking forward to sharing this with everyone, and hopefully you will all find it as interesting as I do. So without further ado, let's go talk to Sada and Alan. Jason, I'm Sara Al Awadi. I'm from Dubai, United Arab Emirates. I'm a corporate lawyer, and when I manage to get out of the office, I like spending my time exploring the outdoors of my country and finding new boulder fields and new hiking trails. My name's Alan Shidley. I'm Sara's husband. I'm originally from Metamore, Illinois, and I found myself in the Middle East about three years ago. Then Sarah and I got married, and since then we've been developing boulders throughout her country for about the past two years now, established almost 200 new problems or so. So I know we're going to talk about a lot of different things because for one, you guys are in a separate part of the country that most of my audience isn't familiar with. So I think it's going to be super interesting for everyone to hear about the differences and similarities between the separate locations and also you're developing boulder areas and a guidebook in an area where that's less common where i think we should start now is let's talk a little bit about your individual histories growing up what brought you guys to the different outdoor activities you do now and then how you kind of came together and decided to join forces on that so i was born and raised in dubai it's not like it is today dubai was very different growing up a lot more outdoor space we spent a lot of time with my family hiking and camping and um, i mean whatever we climbed really was just you know just for fun it was only really when i went to university that I joined the climbing club that I really started to love climbing. So did a lot of indoor rock climbing on rock walls, especially because I was in the UK, I never got the chance to climb outdoors. So once I moved back here, you know, I mean, Dubai is really hot. I never knew there was a climbing scene outdoors. So I just sort of dropped it. And then two years ago, I met my husband, Alan, while waiting in the line to buy a burrito. Yeah, we met and three months later got married. I remember on our first date talking about hobbies we liked and I told him I liked climbing and his eyes like lit up. So he's like, I like climbing too. It's like, oh, this is really great. But it turns out (laughs) what I like, I mean, the way I liked climbing was, you know, indoor rock wall and that was it. Alan spent years and years exploring like the outdoors of like his state and just different parts of the U.S., like finding different boulder fields and writing about it. So our levels are very, very different. (laughs) But so he just sort of introduced me to this whole world of how you can explore your own outdoors and like just find these fields and sort of develop your outdoors. I really fell in love with it. I feel like it brought me closer to my country. Yeah, I grew up in central Illinois in a small town called Metamore, Illinois. From an early age, I was really into mountain biking outside and hiking with my dad and my cousins. 
wasn't until about high school I really got into bouldering and I kind of got stuck in this zone of bouldering and trad climbing. I never really found any interest in sport climbing. I was in the Midwest at the right time when there was a resurgence of boulders being developed up in like Devil's Lake area, down in Southern Illinois, Horseshoe Canyon out in Arkansas. So I really jumped on the wave of that, got under the arm of some good mentors and you know learn how to cut my teeth of really developing new boulder fields what it takes to do that and you know I kept with that traveling throughout the US and then I moved abroad to the UK where um, I was part of a scene up in the Peak District helping find some new climbs that hadn't been done before and then when I moved to the Middle East spent a lot of time traveling throughout Africa developing boulders in like Swaziland, Lesotho, the eastern part of South Africa, parts of Oman in the Arabian Peninsula and also in Sarah's home country of the UAE and on our first date I was like bewildered that someone who had grown up here didn't know that there was such you know virgin boulders waiting to be climbed and <laughs> that's kind of just been our last year and a half has really been digging into her country's mountains and you know as much as I enjoy going out and climbing on the boulders here and establishing new routes it's really cool to see Sarah see her country through a new light and learn about her culture in this way and in a country that is vastly expats here the emirati culture is so small it's a unique way in which sar can reconnect with her culture and her ancestors in a in a country that's vastly vastly changing climbing kind of across the world is represented different ways kind of has different histories right so in europe it's got this rich rich long history in the u.s it's become something in say the last decade or so that's very common but still is a bit niche a bit underground what is it like in the uae is there a culture of climbing there are people aware of it does it seem like an odd pursuit or do people think it's something cool and interesting i'll speak from an expat perspective and i think it's interesting to hear Sarah as a local from an expat perspective it's definitely kind of similar to the US right now I think there's a big like fitness craze around it you get a lot of people who transition in it from other sports like CrossFit or gymnastics or just other clubs in the UAE and it's really uh, transient so you get people who will come really hardcore into it for about three months and drop out which is we kind of see that trend in the US of all the new gyms opening up and you don't see a lot of people going outside and the where the people do go outside all the expats tend to keep to like one or two areas that are really well developed and they know that's like an area they can go climb and I don't know if it's because of comfort of like laziness that they don't want to go out and find new stuff or if it's like they're uncomfortable with the culture and they're uncomfortable maybe just driving around and talking to some of the locals and talking to the farmers. I definitely agree with, you know, the points you've made of the expat climbing culture here. And it's not bad at all. It's I'm happy that somebody's outside. And I feel like if there wasn't that initial interest, nothing would be put up in the first place. But as Alan says, there's really only a few spots. And unfortunately, I feel like those spaces haven't been places where Emiratis, like the locals feel comfortable to go you know you'll have all these people from different countries you know there they'll you know perhaps camp and party and and it's all right I have no issues with it but I think 
by writing a guidebook, one thing I really hope will come out of it is that we'll encourage the people from here who are perhaps a little bit more conservative to feel like it's all right to go and explore their nature. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about UAE. Like a large part of this audience is U.S.-based and even more so Western U.S.-based. And I can tell you that people in U.S., really have no real concept of the Middle East other than some terrible stereotypes that I'm sure are highly inaccurate. If you mention UAE, I think to the average U.S. person, they maybe know Dubai because it has the tallest building in the world and it was in and it was in a movie. <laughs> they probably have heard of Abu Dhabi, but they really have no concept of it. What would you like people listening to know about the UAE? Like, I'm sure there are tons of misconceptions you run into uh, what are those things you'd like people to know that they just don't know about your country? <laughs> well, you're right. A lot of people just know Dubai for, you know, the tallest building. And I have had people ask me if our sandstorms are as bad as that in Mission Impossible. Do they ask you also, oh, did you meet Tom Cruise? Oh, yeah, Cruise of course. You know, did you meet Tom Cruise? Is of your dad course. a shake? You know, <laughs> the usual um, is Aladdin real? Is that really <laughs> You'd something people You'd be surprised. I've you? gotten asked even at university. <laughs> is it based on true fact? Well, clearly. Clearly it's based well, on Well, obviously, fact. it's clearly a documentary. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I think one thing I would love people to know is that, you know, we do have shiny buildings and we are really trying to boost our economy through tourism but some of the foundations of the UAE is, you know, really ingrained in appreciating our nature, a lot of strong family values. I'd like people to see the way we used to live. Like when my grandmother would tell me about how they would, you know, go hiking for ages and, you know, enjoy the desert and even enjoy places like in Ras Al Khaimah where we go bouldering a lot. You know, now you'll actually still see some families there who... You know, every weekend we'll all be camping out near each other and they'll just, you know, park the cars, let the kids go run all, run all over the mountains. And, you know, it's and play with the random goats that, you know, like the mountain goats. And I mean, like those things are like part of our culture. You know, it's not just the shiny buildings. And I think through climbing, I've gotten to get in touch with that a little bit. We were climbing in Ras Al Khaimah once and it just, just reminds me of the story where we were bouldering and this Emirati family from Ras Al Khaimah, I could see the dad sort of walking up to us and like hesitantly just walking by, pretending he's like not trying to see what we're doing. You know, so I just waved to him and say like, oh, salam alaikum. And he, I guess, really surprised that I, I speak Arabic. So it comes over, asks what we're doing in English, though, you know, trying to be respectful that like we're expats and, you know, we probably don't speak Arabic. So I continue speaking to him in Arabic explaining that, you know, like we're rock climbing and, you know, we use these pads like in, in case we fall. He was really surprised. He's like, oh, wow, you like you guys enjoy our outdoors. And, you know, and I'm like, yeah, it's actually really, really beautiful out here. I just think the look on his face is something that I really like, you know, I want the people here to understand that, like, there's so much beauty in like the nature you have, we have. You don't have to go travel and so like, this guy was just ecstatic that we enjoyed the nature out there. And he ended up calling his son over, who was like eight or nine. We sort of taught him a little bit how to climb. And by the end of it, um, they sort of walked off. And then like about 20 minutes later, they came back with like this huge plate of like rice and fish. <laughs> and they're like, you know, we were cooking and you guys were like so lovely. You know, here, have this. 
So we called our bouldering day to an end and just sat and ate this fish with them. You know, it was really, really nice. When I go back home, people are always thinking about, you know, the Middle East is such a scary place. And I've worked and lived throughout the Middle East. Uh, I've worked in conflict zones in the Middle East, and Dubai is not one of them. <laughs> and I think that's always, like, the big misconception. <laughs> like, some of my friends, I used to work and live in Iraq, and a lot of my friends think, like, Dubai is the same as Iraq. Um, and it's not at all. <laughs> They're very different places. I mean, people in the U.S. don't know the difference between the states within sure. the U.S. The idea that they would be able to separate areas in the Middle East is, you know, not a surprise. Yeah, it, but, it, you know, it is it is surprising sometimes. I think, you know, sometimes as Americans, we do undersell ourselves of our worldly global knowledge at times because I have been stupidly surprised that, how much sometimes people know about the Middle East. And it's really impressive when people have spent the time to research and sit down or even just, you know, know some casual facts that aren't, you know, that hard to get in the average day now with the internet. But, you know, I think Sarah was really touching on it. The thing, biggest misconception about Dubai is that, yeah, the city is cool and the things they've done within the metropolitan areas are extremely impressive in the past 50 years of the country. But really where I see the future of the UAE is it's outside. Uh, that's where it has a lot to offer for t tourism, but also like renewable energy. And the mountains are, they're extremely gorgeous here. They're, they're different kind of gorgeous than the Western United States. I always have a soft spot for, you know, the Western U.S. and it's hard to beat those mountains, but here it's a it's a different kind of atmosphere, and it, it feels a little more ancient here. And you know, even before I was roaming around with Sara, you know, looking for boulders, I was doing it with some of my other friends here. And once you get out there, it's the Bedouin people and some of the more rural people are very generous and very open-hearted. And I think that's where you really see the country unfold. And, no, it's similar to the U.S. You know, people are always saying, oh, I've been to the U.S., I've been to New York City, I've been to L.A. I'm like, Th that's not the U.S. Like, those are just big global, you know, big global, you know, cities. They're just like any big global city anywhere else. And if you really want to see the U.S. guy get on, you know, some dirt roads and some back roads, and I think that's where you can really find the fabric of the country. And that's true in the U.S. and here in the U.A.E. It's true, right? We forget that areas are huge and that that means they're going to be a mix of people, a mix of cultures, a mix of attitudes. Just as that's true here in the U.S., it's true everywhere else. People aren't really that different when it comes down to it. Everyone wants the same things and everyone's trying to accomplish the same things. So, Alan, let's talk a little bit about your experience because you moved there. And I know you said you traveled through Africa and a few other places before you got there. But what What's that experience like moving permanently or temporarily? I'm not sure what your situation is to the UAE, moving into a newer, different culture than your own. Yeah, it's been a little bit of a meandering path for me coming to the Middle East. I was uh, studying in the UK for graduate school. Nearing the finish of my studies, I got a job offer to work for one of the universities here. It's a little bit of a brand new one. It was a pretty unique opportunity, and when I took it, I was like, well, I'll only be in the Middle East for like a year or two. I never, ever pictured myself living in the Middle East. Before coming here, I thought all my focus abroad would be predominantly in Africa or in, or in uh, Southeast Asia. That's, that's just where my specialties really was at the time. 
Ended up moving to Abu Dhabi, really liked it. I was working there for about a year and a half, and then I got a call for a job in Iraq in the northern part up in Kurdistan in a city called Soleimani. And I went up there and I was working, and at the same time I made the mistake of meeting Sarah <laughs> and falling in love and ultimately getting married. And she tricked me into coming back in the UAE, which is weird because when I left the UAE, I was, I was done. Like I was like, I'm never going back to the UAE. I had my fill. It was hot. I don't want to go back. I was tired of sweating all the time. And I really thought I would never come back, and here we are now. And we enjoy the UAE. It's always going to be our, our, one of our homes. Um, we definitely see a future in the U.S. And I'm, I'm American to the fault. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Midwest boy. I, I get depressed if I'm not in the Midwest a certain amount of time or if I'm not in the U.S., you know, seeing greenery or just exploring the U.S. And, you know, I, that's where my roots are and, you know, maybe where one day we'll establish our family. But this has also become a very special place in my heart and something I now view as a second home. And it's weird for me to say that. And I think it's weird for my parents to hear that. But, I, you know, they're happy. They like Sarah more than they like me. So it all worked out. <laughs> that, that's when you know it's going all right. It's that situation with my fiance. <laughs> I think both sides like the uh, like the other more than their own child. So I think that's a good thing. <laughs> so this is going to sound a little bit like a funny question. You mentioned like you miss, you know, the greenery and stuff of the U.S. And, and it really is like the things that tie us to the places we grow up often are climate and food. So what do people in the U.S. need to know about the foods that you've discovered in the UAE that they don't know about here? Uh, well, the, the climate is that it's you get swamp ass 24-7 here. It's just terrible. <laughs> like you're sweating. It, it, I mean, you can get awesome temperatures. If you come in like January or February, and you're going to get like awesome all day bouldering sessions. Now, it's still going to be hot cons uh, comparable to like US because, you know, we wait for, you know, snow to fall to go send some really hard projects here. So you got to get used to sending some V10s in like 60 degree weather and 70 degree weather, which it's doable. You got to take a little more breaks. You can get awesome night bouldering sessions here, which is a lot of fun. Just get some big spotlights out and get some cooler temps up in the mountains. Food-wise, I'm a big fan of the local tea, which is called Karak. I just really love it. It's super sugary. It's really milky. I'm, I'm an elf at my heart, so anything filled with sugar, I'll chow down on. And Arabian sweets are... Uh, so sugary you just become diabetic looking at them so if you come here you gotta try like kunafa which is a great dessert it's technically not emirati it's a kind of adopted dish throughout the middle east and i don't know sarah has a lot of good favorites first of all it is not hot all year round all right? we do have some good weather <laughs> yeah you're really selling it you're like come here and get sweaty and get diabetes <laughs> it does snow in the mountains at least once or twice a year which is very odd experience to be in the middle of a desert and to see snow and it's like 70 degrees out it doesn't make sense it's definitely some otherworldly experience uh yeah so in addition to trying to think in addition to kanafa there's baklava which is also another like dessert which is not emirati but we definitely took it and there's legamat if you ever come to Dubai, we'll definitely have you try all of them. In terms of food dishes, there's like biryani, which 
sort of overlaps with like Indian food where it's like rice and chicken or like and it, the cool thing about the way Emiratis do it and the way people in like Saudi and Kuwait do it is it's the way our ancestors really did it. You'll dig a hole in the ground and then you'll like put all the meat in the ground and you'll like cook it underground so it gets really tender and that's something they've preserved till today. So it's the meat's really tender and they then now with that technology can cook it in the rice as well and you eat it with your hands. So if you ever came if you ever came to visit we would show you how to eat with your hands and I think you'd enjoy it. I know Alan has no matter how much he says he just gets diabetes. He definitely enjoys the food here. He's not complaining. <laughs> I mean, the great thing about eating with your hands is you don't have to worry about carrying silverware and things. Exactly. <laughs> so I think that's something everybody everybody can enjoy. So since this is an outdoor show, let's shift our conversation back to climbing and bouldering. Because there's a big jump, right, from I climb the things that are in my area to I contribute to what things are established and people's knowledge of where those things are located. So let's talk about what made you guys shift from just being climbers to being people who wanted to establish new areas. Sara totally got sucked in to projects I was working on. Originally, I just had this like blue notebook in which I was jetty, like jotting down GPS locations of the biggest like boulder clusters I would find. The, one of the problems about the community here, the climbing community, is that it's kind of old school in the way that people will make like topos and they'll put them on PDFs and they'll just share these PDFs instead of putting up on like Mountain Project or other online databases, which is kind of now the norm in the U.S. If you're not going to write a guidebook, you're going to share it on Mountain Project and there's a lot of transparency and I noticed and that kind of like made me disgruntled. I'm like, you guys are going out and climbing things, but you're not sharing it. So what kind of community is this? And you're not really building anything. So I had this blue notebook in which I jotted down, you know, dozens and dozens of boulder fields. I was driving by or I climbed and hiked through. One day I told Sarah, I was like, we should just start going to all these boulder fields and start setting up problems and start cleaning them, breaking the holds, taking the falls, building the landings and kind of what we've just been doing. And she got sucked into it. And slowly over time, she was starting to see lines that I was just walking by and I previously thought couldn't be done. And now she's probably really the main driving force behind it all. I mean, I have to admit my personal interest was besides enjoying climbing with Alan and just being outdoors was I just sort of saw this as an opportunity as such a great way to give back to my country. If, you know, we could go out, enjoy the outdoors, you know, map out these boulder fields, and then we could take that and try to turn it into a bouldering guidebook. That would be phenomenal. And I mean, whether we move to the States or we stay here or move wherever, if we can produce that and publish it, it's something that will stay with the country forever for future Emiratis and even expats that are here. It gives everyone a chance to really explore the outdoors. And I think that was the motivation to keep going. What are we at? Almost 200 now? Yeah. Identified about 200 boulders that definitely have problems on it. We're right around 100 established versus since. And that's really just within you know, this first year of really digging in and trying to go out and cleaning the problems. But, you know, as Sarah was mentioning, I, I think that's where the 
the divergent is is where we see it differently at first I just saw it as like this is a cool project for me to give back to the climbing community and for you know me to kind of leave a little bit of a selfish footprint on the community but Sara you know because of her roots and her ties to the country and it being her country she saw this as you know something bigger she saw it as this is a way to really pave the outdoor scene for expats and for locals here and to really set a foundation for a country that's trying to figure out how to do its outdoors. It doesn't have state parks. It, there's very few nature preserves here. There's very few national parks. And it's something that SAR can give back and kind of show, you know, this is where we need to take things. As much as we need to be building our cities, we also need to be building our outdoor spaces and protecting them. and showing how people to be responsible in those outdoor spaces and how they can also have fun in those outdoor spaces. Yeah, I think Dubai is in a phase where, I mean, all of the UAE, but especially Dubai um, is in a phase where it's developing its identity. And at the moment, it's just very cosmopolitan and, you know, very much like New York, London. So I just, I think both of us really identified that by publishing you know, a guidebook by bringing more people out with us every weekend and just increasing that climbing scene really organically. We're adding to the country's identity that it's not just shopping or like, you know, but you can go, you can go enjoy the desert, which is, I mean, beautiful on its own, but then you could also now go enjoy the mountains. Being from the Midwest, I'm a sucker for finding these hidden gym climbing areas. That's something I've always loved doing is finding the climbing areas that are unexpected and then kind of hyping them up. <laughs> Growing up in the Midwest, there's some world-class bouldering and people just don't go to it because it's in the Midwest. And you know, there's world-class bouldering in you know Iraq. There's world-class bouldering in Swaziland, Lesotho, Morocco. And these are places people just don't go to because they get focused on you know the Yosemites and the Fontaine Blues. And those are definitely the pinnacles of climbing for the right reasons. But I loved, you know, coming to the UAE and replicating while I was doing it in the Midwest, just kind of bushwhacking around and finding these little hidden boulder fields to brag about. Yeah, you were both talking a little earlier about people's reluctance to kind of go out and find areas and the and maybe different reasons. And I th- I do think part of it is just people are unsure how to approach that, right? They're, or they don't know how difficult something's going to be, so they're afraid to get on something if they're if they're not at a certain climbing level if someone hasn't already established it and told them what to expect that difficulty to be. So little things like starting to establish areas and share them with people, it suddenly opens it up to so many more people and can introduce new people to the activity. And then like you were saying, make people start to care about that location. There's that argument in the U.S., and I I wonder if you guys have it there as well, which is those who want to find an area and hide it from everyone, and then those who want to find new areas and share them with everyone. And then there's the argument that, well, you got to keep it secret because they'll destroy it. But then there's the argument that if you share it, people will want to take care of it and protect it, and they won't if they don't see a value in it. So what is the culture like there? Is there this sense that area should be shared or shouldn't? You mentioned that people aren't really sharing to Mountain Project and things like that, but is that just from a lack of knowledge of it, or is it because the climbing culture right there is still in that phase where they want to hide things from each other? I think it's a a little bit of both. Mountain Project definitely is a database that's predominantly used in like North America, 
and a lot of the climbers here are from Europe. So it's not as popular. It's just not part of the uh, climbing community cultures where they come from. I think in the U.S., I mean, everyone's hopping on Mountain Project on the app when they're at the crag trying to find out. Uh, so I think one of it's like a lack of knowledge, like how to share. And also, I think on some level, it's just like contentness. Like they know there's these two main crags they can go to. They know they're established. They know there's routes there and they can go do these routes and they can have a full day of climbing. Why should I go out and, you know, clean new boulders and everything? And I personally, my philosophy of how I go about it, developing boulders is I keep it a secret at first, not because I want to get the first ascents. Sometimes I want to get the first ascents on harder things. I do admit that, but mainly just because I don't want people going out and like me saying, oh, this is really great project. And then they go out and they break a hold and that hold falls on their face and then they got to go get stitches. Uh, like I, I will go out, build the little trails, clean the path. I think it's like my OCD playing out is that like, I really like going out, cleaning things up, you know, getting it in order, chalking the holds. And then, you know, kind of presenting it to people. There's a lot of elements playing in it. But something else, I think, as the climbing community is predominantly expats, not locals like Sara, is that when I originally first started going out, I was just unsure of how I can go out. Is it appropriate for me to just see these cliffs and these boulders and just walk up to them? And there's a lot of complexity in there is like you know how's this gonna be viewed as like a white westerner you know walking in in my shorts and you know going up to these boulders and taking my shirt off and starting to climb and having my buddies along like what kind of image is that gonna send so there's definitely a cultural barrier and you know sara has been extremely helpful in navigating that it's funny that you say that because i think alan is very conscientious when it comes to trying to be sensitive about different cultures and people's private property. I mean, maybe that's an American thing where he's like, I think this is someone's farm, you know, let's not climb here. <laughs> I think there are a lot of people that aren't as sensitive about culture. So I don't think everyone like Alan will say, oh, well, this is a farm. Let, let me not take my shirt off and start yelling and jumping on these rocks. But I think it's more the comfort at least with all, with most people I've become friends with who go rock climbing, it's just it's easy. It's something they they you know it's certain they develop a nice little community, which is great. The only bad thing is that there's so much to be discovered, and you know we go out every weekend. We'll be out pr possibly two days, and each day will be about a ten hour day. I know we're still nowhere near even doing half of the stuff that we want to do. And I think that's something your your readers, no matter where they're listening from, if they're in the U.S. in general or on the West Coast, is you know as climbing's growing and global popularity is these discussions that not only need to occur as you were mentioning between how do we share you know, these new zones, do we share these new zones? What's the ethics around that? But also what's the ethics of the local communities that you're getting involved with? And those were always big discussions in Southern Illinois where I was learning how to climb because all the climbing down there uh, has some Native American artwork on it. There's also some Native American uh, ceremonial grounds down there. So learning how to navigate that, but also getting the local communities involved in it. Because, you know, I think the climbing community wants to be conscientious of that. But it's a, it's a whole new age for climbing. You're getting a whole bunch of new young kids into it, which is great. And you're getting a whole bunch of 
new people just stepping into the sport, either if it's in Dubai or if it's in San Francisco or if it's out in you know Chicago or if it's in St. Louis, these discussions of how can the climbing community work with its local communities to build a better outdoor scene so everyone can enjoy it, not just the climbers, but the locals and we can do it respectfully. Yeah, the tricky thing with climbing too, right, is that people unfamiliar with it assume it's more dangerous than it is. And so there's also this innate fear where, especially in certain parts of the U.S., and I'm sure there as well, where landowners don't want climbing on their area because in the U.S. they can be held liable for injuries and and various other things. So when you do want to establish new areas somewhere where you're not a native, you've got to introduce the people to climbing itself, help them see the value in it, but then also they need to become comfortable with this activity and then also kind of help figure out what the ethics are and i know you don't just want to force Mm -hmm. your american ethics on them can we talk a little bit about that what that's been like trying to develop this in an area where people are maybe learning more about the sport but then also not having the experience with it so that it's as easy as them saying oh this is the climbing ethic locally yeah it's it's interesting <laughs> you spoke to people don't understand that climbers are using a lot of like calculated risk and they're very calculated in the things they're doing because we were in Rwanda doing some hiking and some climbing and we were in uh, this car ride and this guy asked what we're doing there we're like oh we're, we're here rock climbing he's like oh like Alex Honnold and we're like no 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 <laughs> Not like Alex, but it's crazy. Like, you know, this dude in the middle of Rwanda, like he knows Alex Honnold and they know, he knows he's doing some risky stuff. Right. And, you know, I'm not a free soloist by any means. I'm very calculated. If I'll ever do a highball, one of our best friends, he's like a highball junkie. He'll go do these things, but you know, he's extremely calculated in the climbs he does. And he's okay getting, you know, 50 feet off the ground on a highball and, you know, doing some sketchy moves, but he thinks through it. It's not just, you know, amped up dude just running up a boulder. <laughs> Enforcing these, you know, Western ethics, that's something, you know, I, I've thought a lot about because I, you know, we've, I've climbed in, you know, throughout Asia, parts of Africa and the Middle East is, you know, am I just, you know, it's, it's a very white person thing to do, right? Like I'm going to go somewhere and I'm going to climb that. Like that, that's something like just historically. And then I'm going to tell you the right way <laughs> yeah. to do it. Right. And then I'm going to name it. And then I'm going to tell you, this is what it's named. Yeah. I, I struggle with that. All. Yeah. I'm going to give it a very American <laughs> yeah, name. Like right. I'm guilty. I name I name most of my, my boulders after like books I've read. So that's, that's my kind of thing. Uh, So if you go on mountain project and look for the UAE, you will see not only our photos, but Alan's boulder names, some of which are ridiculously long. (laughs) Yeah. I'm an academic. So a lot of them are based on like ethnographies I've read. So they get some interesting names like the white man's, uh, burdens, one of them or portraits of a white man's another one. That's one of the beauties of climbing with Sara in the UAE is I'm learning for the first time of, I've climbed with local climbers around the world, but a lot of my developing was short term. I would drop in for like two weeks or a month and then I would leave and that'd just be like my little influence, my little time there. But now we're here long term and Sara's she is skilled in navigating both of these, these waters of you know, westernization and her local culture and these waters of globalization, which are trickling into climbing. And 
she can explain how she navigates that and how she incorporates the things I've brought, the ethics that I've learned in the U.S. and what she wants to do here too. One point to that's probably very different between the U.S. and here is that unlike what you were saying about the U.S. where landowners were quite afraid of letting someone on their property because, you know, what liability will they have, you know, and will they be responsible? But here, to be honest, there's... You know, as a lawyer myself, the legal system hasn't developed in that way where there's a lot of civil litigation, really, for, you know, damage on someone else's property. So people aren't really worried about that. You know, it's more that the farmers will be either worried for you or they'll be uncomfortable with people they don't know being on their property. I think it's not really a matter of explaining to them what you're doing. It's more taking the time to ask them first, you know, tell them I want to do this and, you know, would it be okay? I'll be here for a little bit. The problem is usually like a language barrier. The farmers are, they understand that you, you probably speak English. They don't speak English, (laughs) but if they see you coming up respectfully and trying to explain to them and like pointing towards the rocks, like, you know, they'll, they'll usually like not mind. So I think the message is really just If you think you're on someone's land, definitely approach them and just like try to explain to them. If one of your friends happens to speak Arabic, that's ideal. But um, there isn't really any other concern when you're on, when you're out trying to find new boulders. I I think always just being cognizant of some of the basics of the local culture here or wherever you're at, even that's in, you know, the next state over or if it's in Europe or if it's in the Middle East of understanding maybe times when to climb and when not to climb. So like Fridays here are the holy day. So whenever like Friday prayers are going on, if you're near a mosque, maybe respectfully don't climb then. Or if you are climbing, keep noise to a minimum. Uh, You know, of course, never leave a trace. That's a global practice. Everyone, I think, can adapt. But here also just understanding, you know, it's, it's not appropriate to bring along beer to the crag. It's not always appropriate to have dogs here because sometimes dogs are viewed differently than how they are in the States. Also, maybe not always being shirtless is something that's a big thing because it's just viewed. I know, it's, it's, all, it's all these things. It's just, you know, wearing long pants. This is a recurring issue with yeah. you, I'm noticing. I, I used to. If, so everyone knows he is wearing a shirt right now, oddly enough. I used enough. to only climb shirtless, and then I came to the U, and then I came to UAE, and now I wear a shirt, both See, at work and not at work. See, I mean, like, you guys laugh, but, like, Alan, the reason Alan is so, like, traumatized by this is because you will have, like, you know, if there's, like, a female farmer who will gladly yell at you if you are on their property, you know, and you're not wearing a shirt. Yeah, ideas of space are are different here of like people in the U.S. don't want you on their space because they're afraid you're going to sue them here. Whereas people don't want you in their space because of how Arab culture is. They, They very much their home is very much their private space. So even if you're close to that, it's can viewed as kind of like an intrusion, even if maybe you're just, you know, a few meters away. I mean, once, you know, Sar is great at navigating these cultural waters, but there is one time I found the best bouldering field in the UAE. I still have dreams about it. There was so many amazing projects. 
and I already like lined up some of my pro friends to come out. I'm like, you guys, this is gonna be epic. Like, there's there's double digits like left and right that we could all climb. And we get out of the car, and this one dude just starts yelling at us. And Sara tried to you know negotiate it. We weren't on his you know house property, but it's just that like it was close to his house, and he didn't want people you know driving up, parking their cars, hiking up in there because you know he has his family around and he has his goats around and. You know, I think that these are all different ideas of working through ideas of space, ideas of identity, ideas of ownership. And luckily, you know, Sara is like my pocketbook Emirati that I can pull out and help whenever <laughs> I need that. And you know, she's really good at articulating what the climbers want to do, but she's also really good at articulating, you know, what the locals you know, envision also. Are there any instances where the opposite happens, where you show up and then someone's super intrigued by what you're doing and then they come sit out and watch you and then it's a new experience and they're excited for uh, it? I, I've had quite a few of those and Sara and I have had them together. One that pops in my mind was before I met Sara, my good climbing buddy and I were out in a different area called Alain climbing some boulders and this one guy saw us and he was so excited he drove back to his home, got his brothers, came out. They cooked a lamb for us. They poured tea for us. We ended up spending the whole night with them, just like smoking shisha, playing cards, and it was a it was a really fun night. Once we were climbing out in uh, Rossel Kema, it was Sara and I and some of our other friends, and this one dude, you know, just came out of nowhere asked us what we were doing you know we said we were climbing rocks and he, he just says good there's not enough people out here enjoying this and he just kind of stood for a moment watched and went on his merry way so you know it's just like the u.s i, I used to climb a lot in new york city when i was going to school there and climbing in central park and you could get these curious on onlookers and you know a lot of times people are just, they just got questions and they're they're just happy that you're happy out doing your thing. So one of the things I'd, I'd like us to talk about now is what it's like to develop areas because most climbers show up, somebody else has already cleaned it and established it, and it seems pretty straightforward. Until you start establishing routes, you don't realize how much work goes into that. So tell us a little bit about all the responsibilities and all the difficulties of establishing these areas. The physical side of it is, traditionally I've always used like Google Earth kind of like spot out things that look like there's potential. A lot of time looking at Google images of things. Um, a lot of time. Yeah. He spends a lot of time doing this. Every county park <laughs> in the U.S. I've probably looked at, uh, just like for new stuff. But then once you're getting there, seeing it, there's already some kind of established trails. Luckily here, there's you don't have to worry too much about like plant life ruining it. It's mostly desert, so you can walk up to pretty much everything. But then once you're getting there, if you're thinking about long term and you know giving back to the community, I always first think about building landing. So moving, if there's any big rocks out of the way, kind of making it as smooth as possible so you can lay down your pads. And then the second thing is the rock here is quite sharp, which is pretty heinous. And there is one practice you have to do here, which I would never do in the States or in Europe, is kind of, you know, brushing down some of the holds just because they can be really sharp. What kind of rock is and it? So it's predominantly like really sharp sandstone, and then there's some granite. 
Yeah, it's just, and it's also and limestone uh, as well. Some limestone. Yeah, in Iraq, there's a lot of limestone. But it can just be really sharp. So you gotta have a wire brush where you kind of sharpen that down, not where you're morphing the hold, but you're just making it at least attainable. You're changing it from sharp glass and to yeah, gold yeah. glass. <laughs> With that said, the bolt, the the climbing here is really good. <laughs> you just have to watch for these glass holds every once in a while. But uh, no, no, no. You you go you go there. You get diabetes. <laughs> you cut your hands up. You're totally selling yeah, people. Yeah, on. you get, get swamp ass. It's a good time. You can't take your shirt off. You cannot take your shirt off. You can't climb on Friday. Um, but yeah, just you know. Chalking up the holds, making sure they're they're at least identifiable if someone wants to come along. Not that you're leaving, you know, huge tick marks there, but at least if someone comes along, they know it's done. And then you know, making sure the top out's good, and you have some kind of down climb, or if there's no down climb, you know, making a note of, you know, how you can top rope out of it. And then I think the most important thing then is, you know, sharing that knowledge. You can go out, you can clean it, you can move the boulders, you can chalk the holds, you can break the holds, you can smooth the holds. But none of that is meaningful, I think, unless if you, you know, pass that along to your friends. So then we take that knowledge and we put it on Mountain Project predominantly where we will show the lines on the boulder, you know, using the identifying keys and then put on knowledge there of, you know, the GPS locations of it and how many pads you might need if a spotter is definitely really need it and then yeah i know what the hike might be in like that and the the physical part sometimes can be pretty laborious it can be you're sitting down you know it's been 20 minutes cleaning this thing and moving rocks and throwing rocks i remember one time star and i spent like an hour cleaning this v3 for, for no reason i don't it, it, it was a really fun climb but did not need I, it was not worth that 20 minutes of throwing rocks around. We built, you know, nice little landing for it. But, you know, I've, I've already gone back to that boulder, and I, I've climbed it with a couple of friends, and I know some other people have already climbed it. And the physical part, you know, it needs to be done if you want to create, you know, anything that's like Yosemite or Rocky Mountain National Park or, you know, what's happening out in Roy in New Mexico right now. And, you know, Sara, she sees a long-term vision of that. Um, well, just before talking about the long-term vision, I think I think there's a lot to be said about discovering new boulder fields and like projecting an area. I'd never really done that before until I started going out with Alan, and it's really fun. You know, obviously it's fun to go and you go to this like world-class boulder field, and you know you know the different levels that are there, and you can go try things. And but when you're finding a new area. It is a lot of cleaning and it does teach you like a lot of patience, but it's, I think one of the most fun things is finding new lines on boulders, finding new boulders that can potentially, you know, like be climbed or not. And I don't know, I thought, I thought that was actually something if people haven't done before that they should definitely, you know, try to do once. And I feel like as someone who just got into outdoor climbing two years ago, it really helps you develop as a climber when you're starting to not just look at a developed rock and try to climb it, but actually looking at a boulder and saying, well, hey, where can I climb this and how can I? I feel like you just develop mentally um, and not just physically. Get really good at gardening. <laughs> you learn how the 
your gardener out in nature very well. And, and it's great. I mean, with his OCD, I just have him out there, have him clean up some rocks by the end of it. Like, yeah, his mind's at peace. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, the only thing I could say about long term is what Alan was saying that, you know, putting things on Mountain Project to let people know. You know, I think with all the problems we've done, even though we want to develop a guidebook, in the meantime, you know, we're like, there's such good stuff. Just put them on Mountain Project and, you know, at least put most of them and let people go out there. So no matter where we end up, there will still be people that have found boulders, you know, that we've put up. Yeah, you can put the skin and bones kind of on Mountain Project, which I've seen happen in some other areas. They'll, they'll put up, you know, just the fabric of what's happening and then they use the guidebooks really to like flesh out everything. They'll put, you know, the history in there. They'll put more concrete details of how to find everything, a little more details on the first ascents. Um, we'll show them where, you know, while driving to Boulder Fields, um, routes they can take where you can actually see people out in the desert, like, you know, training their falcons and like places where there's camel races and like you'll see little bits of the culture which if you you know stayed in a climbing gym or didn't go out at all and just stayed in the city you'd never see like these little gems of Arab culture. So let's talk now about the difficulties of developing the guidebook itself and when that's going to be ready or when you project releasing that. It was supposed to be done by now. <laughs> Uh, but uh, Sara, Sara is a corporate lawyer and uh, I'm a professor, so our lives are a little bit busy and we have two puppies. We wanted it to be done, at least a digital version of it right now, but it looks like we'll probably have it out by next fall. That's the plan, so right at the start of next season is when we plan to have it out, the digital version. The major barrier is kind of finding publishers, uh, as sad as it is old textbook guidebooks are going away and that's what I grew up and that's what I love still to this day I love holding that guidebook you know marking the pages writing in it reading the history reading about you know kind of the key players in those areas convincing publishers to do something in the Middle East uh, I really have to sell the aspect that this is a growing market for them that they can sell the book here but then also that this is a growing market that we can have advertise, you know, advertisers in the pages. So that that's been good. We've had interest from some companies to do the print run, but in newer areas, something you know, I learned from a friend of mine out in North Dakota who actually built the North Dakota climbing book, is that you can get you know local government entities to buy in. So he was able to get the North Dakota tourism and agency up there to help pay for part of his guidebook to be print and to run some copies of it. And that's what now we've been working on is working with maybe Dubai Tourism or also the government of Russell Kema or Sharjah government to get them to help buy uh, some of the print copies and they'll help push us that out. And that's the goal with the digital copy is that we have something we can walk into conversations about getting the print one out because I'm still old school by my faults and that, you know, I want something I can hold and that's something I can hand down to my kids and be like, you know, this is this is something your mother and I did together. So is this book going to be illustrations, photographs, color, black and white photographs? What is it going to look like on the yeah, inside? Yeah, it's going to have photographs. So I've been the main photographer on the project along with some other people collecting this huge database of photos. 
Um, and then one of the awesome things is that Sarah's also an artist. She does. She should have never been a lawyer. <laughs> Sarah should have been an artist or a wildlife uh, <laughs> biologist. But she makes way more money than I do, so I'm not complaining. So it's been helpful that she's a lawyer <laughs> in the long run. You know, she does amazing artwork, and so she's been practicing drawing some of these maps and really studying other guidebooks at how they do the maps. And then, you know, kind of some filler pages if she's going to incorporate some traditional, like, Arab artwork into it that highlights, you know, Emirati culture and Emirati landscapes and some of the animals here. We're getting to that point where I think we go ahead and start wrapping up. So why don't you guys tell everyone where they can find more information and beta and, and such that you guys are, have collected thus far, but then also any personal places you want to share anything? Well, in terms of where people can make a start of finding boulder fields, I would 100% recommend going on Mountain Project and just, you know, looking at the Middle East and we'll go to Asia and then there'll be the Middle East and you'll see in Ras Al Khaimah and LA and Abu Dhabi, we've put quite a few boulders up. I, th I think you'll definitely, you know, the, the listeners will be quite busy with that until we get our book out. Yeah, and there's some, there's some publications I've written about climbing in the UAE that have been floating around some various outdoor magazines, various climbing magazines. But yeah, if they ever need any contact about the UAE, the Mountain Project's the best zone right now to get the updated information. We just hit summer here and it's ungodly warm out. So we're in semi-retirement until about October. We go stateside for you know a couple of weeks and we do all our climbing there until it starts cooling down here. The prime time to climb is between, starts around November and goes till early April. Best months are January and February for sure. Mountain Project has you know, the skin and bones right now. If you're looking to come over and kind of have an interesting climbing experience, we can come check out one of the fastest growing metropolitan areas in the world. But if you really want to go out and, you know, have a taste at, you know, Middle East climbing experience that isn't like Morocco or Jordan, which are the big destinations right now, the UAE can be a really great spot. And it's easy to do. It's a great country to road trip around. Locals are friendly. The expats will help you out as much as you want. You know, it's, it's become my second home, so I, I hope people come. Any personal links or anything you guys want to share? Yeah, you can check out uh, some of my writings that we share about our stories on akshidley.com, which we'll probably provide a link in the profile here. So the way I like to always end these shows is to ask you guys if there's some topic we haven't covered yet you want to talk about or if there's a final thought based on the things we have talked about that you want to leave people with. Climbing is diversifying and we see this as a conversation that's happening a lot in the U.S. of climbing did used to be predominantly a lot of white shirtless dudes and now we're starting to see you know this community diversify not just locally but globally and I think you know one of the things that's interesting that Sarah really didn't touch on is how she is slowly not becoming a role model for young Arab Muslim women but how she's kind of leading you know the changing face of climbing on a global scale that anyone can really get involved in this sport. Yeah I mean I've gotten a couple of opportunities just to sort of speak about climbing as a woman in the Middle East and I mean they've been great opportunities because 
you know, like Alan says, the the scene is diversifying, but I think the change is taking a little bit longer here. Uh, so it is really good to, you know, to be able to be outside and really love being outside. And I take it as a responsibility that I need to sort of get my voice out there because being out climbing isn't something that's traditionally part of our culture. You know, Arabic culture is quite conservative. The people are changing and becoming a lot more open-minded. You know, a lot of a lot of people I grew up with have studied abroad, and you know, even if they've studied here, they're you know they're definitely becoming more open-minded. But you know, but it's just we haven't been raised to to think that women can really be out, you know, and like climbing clothes and like outside climbing. And it is a really really great opportunity that I'm getting to voice, you know, be a voice for that community. I'm not going to let you finish without talking more about that. So so tell us some of the things, some of the changes you've seen in women and some of the positive things you've seen come out of, out of introducing them to climbing. Um, well, first, I just want to say that there are, to be fair, some Arab women who are climbers. They're really great women. The only issue is that they do all their climbing out of the country. The only thing I, I wanted to add is that, you know, to be a role model for climbing and to encourage people to be outdoors in their home countries to really explore their outdoors. Um, I think one big aspect is that because it's hot out, you know, um, I think things people wear to go climbing, I mean, you can still be as covered as you want, you know, but your pants, like jeans, or like maybe a tank top or something. And so it's a little bit less conservative. So historically, women wouldn't have been as comfortable like that. But things are changing so much that it's good to sort of be a voice that, you know, this is all right. You know, you could do it in these spaces. One of the ways it's changing that I'm seeing, because I work with a lot of the youth in the UAE, is that ideas of independence. You know, I think climbing has always been a culture that's kind of pushed that idea of independence of I'm going to, you know, load up my car and I'm going to go out to the Sierra Nevadas for a month on my own, or I'm going to road trip around the southeast, or I'm going to go up to you know, New Hampshire, Vermont, and I'm going to go climb. And there's this independence factor about it that you're going to go out and you're going to do something either with your friends or by yourself. And that's not something that's, like, inherent inside of uh, Arab culture, particularly for the women, that, you know, I'm going to jump in a car with all these dudes and I'm going to go out to the middle of the desert and I'm going to climb all day and my parents are going to be okay with that. You know, it just takes, I think, seeing someone do it to realize that it's okay and that it's safe. And, you know, when I speak with a lot of my students who are young, you know, female Emiratis, is that, you know, I tell them about my wife and I show them, you know, some of the photos of her climbing and their their minds completely just change and that this is something they see that someone like them is doing. And, and that's a really powerful image, I think, within our climbing community as it diversifies is that it's not just one type of person out doing this, that it's everyone out going to do this. And that's something I think we don't quite understand the, the full power of it is that just seeing someone who might look like you or you might associate with your culture or where you're from doing something can completely change things. And, you know, since Sar and I have been climbing together and I've been sharing these stories, I've had young Arab women approach me and be like, you know, it's really because of your wife that now I go out and I go rock climbing. Or I went to the rock climbing gym and it's awesome, you know, they're wearing the hijab and they might be fully covered, but they're at the local gym and they're starting to crush it. That, that's really cool to me in that 
this sport is changing and that it's changing at this right time where other people can gain access to it in the Middle East, particularly as it's starting to go through some of its gender norms and changing those, you're seeing this whole new wave of climbers enter into it. And, you know, I, I think the future of climbing is, is going to be female. I mean, it's there's a lot of young female crushers coming out. And once it really starts to develop in some of these pockets that we haven't traditionally seen people come out of, I mean, the potential is, is, is unreal. Sar, do you have any particular stories that come to mind of, of women you've met who have told you that this has made a change for them or made a difference for them oh yeah actually there is someone um so um i was like i know there's someone but yes no there definitely is um so i um i mean like so we put things on mountain project and occasionally people will like reach out to us you know so it's really cool sometimes we'll go out by ourselves or sometimes we'll actually invite these people along and there was once this um, woman from Lebanon who who asked if she could come out and she's like on Instagram. And so it was like, oh, you know, I'd like to come out, do a bit of a photo shoot. But I was like, all right, you know, sure. And she came out. So we'd gone on like a few highballs and, you know, she tried climbing a little bit and found that she'd gotten a bit scared. You know, so I just was like, look, it's all right. You know, it's everyone gets scared. Like, it's cool. Um, I'm like, here, let me let me try it. And. I'd gotten it right before she got there. So here, let me show you how to do it. I did it again and and it, then I climbed another boulder and, you know, I came down and she was just like, the look on her face was awesome. You know, she's like, it's so cool seeing how like, how hard you tried to do it and like you crushed it. And, you know, I want to try now. And she, after a few tries, got it. And so we continued climbing that day. And then at the end of it, she's like, you know, I told people that I go climbing and I put it all over my Instagram. But I think today was the first time in three years of Instagramming that I've really climbed, Um, you know, so thank you. And like, I want to do this more. Like it was tough. My hands are all cut up, but I feel like I've really like tested myself and pushed myself. And, you know, I saw you like scratching your knees and like almost falling off them. But you know, you did it with a smile and like you were just so energetic that like it just motivated me. And yeah, it was just like one of the coolest compliments I'd ever gotten, you know, that I motivated somebody by doing something that I'm really passionate about. So I want to thank both of you for contacting me and then sitting down, you know, and talk to me about this. The best of luck with all of this stuff. Uh, I think it's great to help establish new areas all over the world. So good luck with this moving forward. And thanks again for coming and being on the show. Thanks, Jason. Have a great day. And thanks for having us on. Thank you. And now is the part of the show where I ask you to run to your computer machine and go to our website, gogetoutside.com. Look for this episode 88 with Sara Al-Awadi and Alan Shidley. And there you will find photographs of both of them in action, along with links to the things we talked about in today's show. And should you want to get in touch with us for anything you heard on today's episode or a previous episode or to discuss things you'd love to hear in future episodes, there are a number of ways you can do that. You can send us an email, go at butcherbirdstudios.com or leave us a voicemail or text 
925-0106. And I'm also hoping to put together a John Muir Trail special episode here at the end of the season. So if you have in the past hiked the John Muir Trail, whether in sections or as a through hike, please give us a call, 818-925-0106, and leave a voicemail up to three minutes telling us a little about your experience. And hopefully at the end of this season, I'll take a number of excerpts from these voicemails and cut together an episode all about the John Muir Trail and the individual experiences of myself and many of you that are listening. And please do us a favor here at the show. Go to your podcast purveyor of choice, subscribe, rate, review the show, and share it with someone who would enjoy it. This episode of the Go Get Outside podcast was produced, recorded, and edited by me, your host, Jason Milligan. Additional help was provided by Griffin Davis. And as always, it has been brought to you by Butcher Bird Studios. Next time on the show, come back November 16th for Chef Corso of Monte Boca. He is going to tell us all about how you can take fresh food out on the trail, leave the dehydrated meals back at home, and have a superior dining experience while backpacking, hiking, or just spending time in the outdoors. Come back November 16th. Chef Corso. See you then. You have your standard you know, operations where, you know, you're just kind of going in, you're helping someone who you know, jumped off of a cliff, uh, sprained their ankle or, or, or feel some kind, some type of back pain. All those are kind of like the typical operations. And then you get those that really kind of tug at you. You know, in one instance, there was a father and a daughter uh, went out hiking. They didn't return home uh, in the time that they said that they would. And so our, our team was deployed along with another team and we went out to look for them and more and more information about people kind of comes in over the radio just you know anything that might help us in this instance you know we, we found out that the father was uh, and the daughter had gone hiking many times before there before they were very familiar with the area this wasn't like you know the case of you know someone making a wrong turn but uh, what happened is that part of the uh, of the route that they were going to take was now closed and so they had to uh, make a detour. And so we thought, okay, they're probably somewhere, you know, stuck, you know, in the detour area, which unfortunately takes them through some really rough and rugged uh, terrain. We looked for them for the whole day, and then nighttime came. We were still out in the field. It was probably about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. The guy that I was with calls out the name, calls out a name, and then, and this is after hundreds of time calling. And then you get a faint, I'm here. Like, first, you, you, you're not quite sure. Right, you think maybe you heard something. Yeah, you know, and you call out the name again, and then the, the voice gets stronger. And, and I, I tell you, there's nothing quite like that feeling of, of finding someone when they're lost. And you can hear the desperation, you know, in their voice. Um, and, and you know that, okay, you just did a good thing.